quickly about the cross last time. Two weeks ago, Brother Mike Manuel was here last weekend, but two weeks ago we talked about biblical community from the aspect of the church. And if you remember, we talked about the altar and the temple and how the altar and the temple were a foreshadowing. They were a preview of the cross and the church. And we saw in the Old Testament that God never built the temple. He never erected the tabernacle. He never built a house until there was an altar built. The altar was always built first. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In verse 21, Jesus goes on, He says, Then He began to share with His disciples those things that He would have to suffer. And so Jesus made this declaration of the church that he would build and of the church that would be victorious. But he also said before this church can be built, before this church can be birthed, there is going to be a cross and I'm going to die on that cross. And the altar in the Old Testament always represented, it represents the cross. And so let's talk today about biblical community from the point of view of the cross because we can't talk about the church unless we talk about the cross. Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. Father, we just ask today that You would open our hearts and open our minds. Lord, even as Paul prayed, I pray that the eyes of, of our understanding would be open, would be enlightened today, that Your Spirit, God, would lead us and guide us into all truth. That, Lord, we don't want the words of man, we don't want the wisdom of man or the wisdom of this age, Father God. We want the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation. Only the gospel, only the message of the cross, Father God, can change us and transform us, Lord, and mold us and shape us, conform us to the image of your dear Son. So, Father, we ask today that you would open our hearts and minds to receive the good word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord saw through the cross this great heavenly object, and what was it? When Jesus hung on that cross, it says He endured the suffering, despising the shame of it, but He endured the suffering for the joy that was set before Him. And the joy, that joy that was set before him, that object that he saw was and is the church, his body, his bride. And Jesus died on that cross so that there would be an expression on earth of who he is in heaven. Remember the prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, in this way pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus did not die on the cross just so that there could be this invisible, mystical, universal church existing out there that we all read about and believe in and talk about. No, He died on that cross that there would be an expression of His life in this earth, right here and right now. And guess what? You are the expression of His life because you are the church. And Jesus died so that you could express His life in this earth. So that His will could be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And so we see that the cross leads directly and immediately to what? To the church. Jesus went to the cross so that there could be a church. He was, according to John in the book of Revelation, the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundations of the earth. Why was He slain before the foundations of the earth? Because it was always God's purpose for the cross to lead directly to the church. Because God had always, is, and will always purpose that there be an expression of His Son that will fill this created order. And so the church is to be the embodiment of the cross. The church is to preach the cross. But not just with words. Most importantly, the church is to preach the cross by what it is. See, the greatest message you will ever deliver to somebody is not by what you say, 
but it's how you live. People can care less about what you have to say if your life does not back it up. We can sit here and, and we can slice and dice people with this Bible. We can pound them over the head with the Word of God. But if the message, if the epistle, if the letter of your life does not line up with the words coming out of your mouth, you might as well just not say anything. And the church can preach all she wants. But unless she demonstrates, unless she becomes that expression of Jesus in this earth, her preaching and her teaching and her doctrines and her theologies and her seminaries and all of that that we, we value so much because we want to hold on to all of these things that have become our traditions, that have become just the way it's supposed to be. But if those things are not the expression of Christ, then they're meaningless. And so the church is to preach the cross, but first by what it is. And in order to get the church as it should be, guess what? We need to get back to the cross. For the cross provides the ground and it provides the means for the church. And the church becomes the embodiment of the meaning of the cross. My life. It's why Paul made this statement. He's, it's why he said, I die daily. It's why he said, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. What you see in me, he said, I embody the cross. My life embodies the cross. Why? Because the cross is the only thing that has the power to change men. Because the cross is the only thing that has the power to transform. I mean, vote, vote for your candidate. Vote for the most godly, if there are any godly, truly. Vote for the ones that say they're the most godly. Vote for the ones that line up with your economic philosophy, your social Do all of that, but don't ever think that that is going to really change or transform anything. Because I'm telling you what, the only thing that will change and transform truly is the cross. It's the gospel. And when the church returns to the gospel, preaching the true gospel, that's when we will begin to see the power of God, the transformation of God begin to take place. Amen? The church, the church is the divine outcome of the cross. And so it must define the nature and the meaning of the cross. The church is the divine outcome of the cross. That's why when you talk about the cross, it's all inclusive. You can't talk about the cross without knowing that you are talking about the resurrection. Because if I am crucified with Christ, then it's a given that I am raised with Christ. Because when Christ was crucified, it was a given that he would be raised. How do we know? Because he told his disciples, I'm going to the cross, but I'm telling you what, in three days I'm going to rise again. I'm going away to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back to you to receive you to myself. And he wasn't talking about the second coming. He was talking about his resurrection. He went to prepare a place because he atoned for sin. And he came back to receive them at the resurrection. It was at the resurrection that Jesus proved that he was who he said he is. It was at the resurrection that Jesus proved that what the Scripture said about Him from Genesis all the way to the end of the Old Testament were true. And He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so Jesus has proven Himself. And the church is that divine outcome of the cross. So let's talk about the function of the cross. And specifically today, we're going to talk about idolatry. And we're going to talk about idolatry because... Idolatry is at the root of every problem that we have. The cross puts an end to idolatry. Idolatry lies behind everything for which the cross of Christ came into being. Alright, so we can't talk about idolatry without talking about worship. The cross 
like the altar. Think about the altar. What's an altar? Remember we said the altar was a place of sacrifice. But, but more than that, the altar was a place of worship. And the cross, like the altar, at its very heart and at its very center relates to, guess what? It relates to worship. It does. Worship is the final word, the ultimate matter in this universe. The cross of Christ has become the centerpiece that touches everything. And at the very center of that is this one thing, worship. What do I mean that the cross touches everything? I'm telling you that that all of history is defined by the cross. The cross hangs as the centerpiece. And it defines everything. It does. God sees men, either they, they are before the cross or they are after the cross. If I have not come to the cross, I am where? I'm in death. If I have come to the cross and I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, if I've been crucified with Christ, guess what? I've been raised with Christ. That's what Paul taught us in Romans 6. And so when God sees me, after I have come to that cross, guess what? He sees me in life. And so the cross divides life and death. If I haven't come to the cross to be crucified with Him, then I am still in death. What does that mean? I am still separated from God because that's what death is. Don't confuse death with whether you're breathing oxygen or whether you're animated because that's not death. Jesus said, don't fear those that can kill your body. Fear Him who has the power to cast your soul into hell. Because if your soul gets cast into hell, guess what? You are eternally separated from God. And that, that is death. And so before we come to the cross, we are in death. We are separated from God. But the cross makes a way for us to come into life. And so this idea of idolatry, when we begin to understand worship, then we see that idolatry, listen, is simply anything and everything that takes from the utterness of God being the very life of man. Do you understand that God is your life? And anything that takes away from that reality, anything that causes you to see or believe or look at anything else, as something that can give you life, that can provide anything to you, that becomes idolatry. God is the spring, He is the source, He is the center of life upon which man is utterly dependent in order to have life. I want you to think about that. You are utterly dependent upon God for life. You are. You are so dependent that God has made it a law in His universe that man cannot live apart from Him. You say, well, I'm living, Pastor. I don't even believe in God. It doesn't matter whether you believe in Him or not. You don't have to believe in gravity. But it's real. And I'm telling you what, God has made it a law that you cannot live apart from Him. You can try You can deceive yourself into thinking you have life, but apart from God, there is no life that exists. Because if you are not with Him, if you are not joined to Him, then you are separated from Him. And if you're separated from Him, you are in death and not in life. For God is life and there is no life apart from God. Anything which becomes for man a substitute for God is idolatry. Because God Himself is life. Are you following me? Anything that becomes for man a substitute for God. Now, now we would never admit that something has become a substitute. Because we want to we wanna hold on to God and we want to hold on to our idols. And we think as long as we have God in one hand and our little idols in the other hand that we're okay because I still have God. Mm-mm. It doesn't work that way. God's not going to share you with anyone. He doesn't want, that's why the scripture says he's a jealous God. He doesn't want divided loyalties. 
So let's talk a little further, or let's define idolatry a little further. Idolatry is all that is not God as the basis or object of man's life. Let me say that again. Idolatry is all that is not God as the basis or object of man's life. Idolatry is never passive. It's always active. You may think it's passive. You may think, oh, I'm just complacent. No, idolatry is always an active thing. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Idolatry is the first and persistent work of Satan to get something into the place of the Lord himself. Genesis chapter 3. That, this is why I began this by saying that idolatry lies behind everything for which the cross of Christ came into being. And idolatry is tied into worship. Because guess what? What we idolize, whether we realize it or not, is what we worship. It's why the first commandment was what? You shall have no other gods before me. Here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, here's Adam and Eve in the garden. And the serpent, Satan, has come. And guess what his work is to do here? His work here is to call something to come into the place that God is supposed to be. Now, the enemy doesn't care what it is. See, as Christians, we, we think, well, I'm not into idolatry. You know, I'm not worshiping some pagan false god. I'm not worshiping the devil. Well, you don't have to. You don't have to. Because remember, idolatry is anything, anything that comes between you and God. Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree, she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. You notice Adam was with her. You notice who the snake went to. The lawless one bypassed the one who should have had the authority to, to just close the door to this whole situation. But he didn't do it. Could he have closed the door? Absolutely. Absolutely she could have, but she didn't do it. And look what it says. She saw the tree, that it was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. 1 John 2.16, let me read it to you. In 1 John 2.16, here's what John says. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Do you see? Look what Eve said. She's standing there looking at that tree. Now what's happened? The, the devil comes, and what's he do? He draws her focus off of God, off of what the Word has declared, and he gets her focusing on this tree. And she's looking at that tree, and she says, hmm, it sure is good looking. It looks like it would taste good. It looks like it would be good for me. It looks like it would make me wise. And you know what happened? Right there. The fruit of that tree became an idol. And she gave place to it. And she partook of it. And you know the rest of the story. So from the very beginning, the first and the persistent work of Satan is to get something in the place of the Lord personally. But idolatry is not to be thought of as only pagan idols. It can be fruit. It can be things that look good to us. Things that taste good to us. Things that we think will make us wise. Things that will make us happy. Things that will make us successful. It doesn't matter. Idolatry is something the enemy wants to activate in the life of every 
believer. Now here's something about idolatry. Idolatry is always religious. It's always religious. And here's where Christians especially fall prey. Not just Christians. Do you know, I, I really believe this. I've said this before. I, I think there's, in actuality, very, 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 very few true atheists who, who really live. The vast majority of people believe in something. Everybody believes in something. Whether you've made yourself your own God or not, you believe in something. And you're putting your trust in something. And here's the thing, if it's not God, that something has become an idol. If you are looking to something to give you life, that something has become an idol. If you are looking to something to affirm you, to build you up, to give you peace, to give you joy, to give you whatever it is you feel like you need, money, happiness, whatever, you can fill the blank in. If you look to that thing, that thing has become an idol. Idolatry is always religious. So it is possible to have the things of success and happiness in place of the Lord himself. And when that happens, guess what? That's idolatry. It's possible to have the things of family and friends in the place of the Lord himself. And guess what? When that happens, that is idolatry. Now check this out. It's even possible to have the things of the Lord in the place of the Lord himself. How is that possible? How can I have the things of the Lord in the place of the Lord himself and that be idolatry? Can this position I have as pastor become an idol in my life? Oh yeah, it sure can. Can I begin to look to my position? That's my pager again, sorry. Can I begin to look to my position? My ministry is that which supplies me life. That which is going to fulfill me. That which is going to give me the affirmation that I desire. If I do, guess what? It's become an idol. We can hang on to our ministries. We can hang on to our good works. And we can find scripture to justify us doing it. And we can call it all good. But the reality is, when I begin to allow that thing, whatever it is, you fill in the blank. When I begin to allow that thing to supply life to me, to supply joy to me, to supply peace to me, when that thing becomes an object in itself, guess what? It has become an idol. It has. And it's possible to have the things of the Lord in the place of the Lord Himself and that become idolatry. We're seeing it happen right now. It, it was interesting today in the adult Bible study, the subject of judgment came up and, and, and read the scripture from 1 Peter 4.17 where it says, Peter says, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And, and the question was raised, well, how, how is judgment, you know, how does judgment come to the house of God? And, you know, I think a lot of times we think judgment is some, some sudden event that's going to happen. And it, and it can be. You know, I, I just want to say this before I go any further. God doesn't want to judge. He doesn't want to judge or condemn anybody. He doesn't want to. Matter of fact, the scripture says that Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to save. He came to redeem. When he came, the world was already condemned. First, uh, John 3.17 says. The world was already condemned because they had already rejected him. They had already rejected God, so the world was already condemned. Jesus didn't come to condemn anybody. He came because we were already condemned, and he wants to redeem us and to save us from the condemnation that is already upon us. That's why he went to the cross to destroy idolatry. To, to release man from the idolatry that he entered into through the original sin of Adam. But what, what does judgment, P 
Peter does make this statement, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. What does that look like? Does that mean God's mad at everybody and he was just going to go around slapping everybody down and zapping them and afflicting them with... No. Here's what I believe the judgment looks like. And I believe the judgment is taking place right now. See, we need to, we need to step back and get a broader view of human history. We're way, way too myopic. We're just so consumed with our little life and our little world. We're so focused here, we, we can't see the big picture. But if we step back and we see the big picture, you can see exactly what's happening. You can see that God has left the church to itself to build its own institutions, to create its own doctrines, to create all of these things, just like the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. They took the Word of God, which was given to us to be life to us, and they turned it into something that brought death. And now we're trying to use all the wisdom of the world and all the wisdom of the age to try to figure out how to get this ship turned in the right direction because it just seems like it's taking on water faster than we can bail it out. And you know what? It is. And God is going to let the ship sink. You know why? Because man built the ship. God didn't. God says, I'm going to let your ship sink because your ship is not of me. Your ship was built by your hands, by your wisdom, by your methods. He said, I've got something not built by the hands of man. I've got something that's not been established by the wisdom of this age or the wisdom of this world. And that is what I have promised to build that is what I have promised the gates of hell would not prevail against, not what you've done. What you've done, I'm going to let it fall, and that is the judgment of God. The judgment of God is I'm going to let your man-made empires and your man-made traditions and your man-made doctrines and your man-made churches, I'm going to let them all crumble to nothing. And in your futility, you're going to see that you're not affecting transformation in anybody's life, you're deceiving yourself. But here's the good news, church. If you are the redeemed of the Lord today, God has made a promise to you. And God loves you enough that He will not leave you in your error. He will not leave you to your own devices. If He has to let it all crumble, He'll let it all crumble. But I'm telling you what, He will lift you up he will raise you up. That's his promise to you. And he will do it. He will fulfill his word. The cross is ever being used by the Holy Spirit to strike at everything, no matter what it is, that comes to occupy the place of the Lord himself. Whatever is in your life that comes to occupy the place that God needs to be in, God will, by the Spirit of God, strike it with the cross. Why the cross? Because the cross is the instrument that God has chosen to use to bring us life. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter, actually go to Acts chapter 2. Well, I don't have time um, to do all of this, but I just want to touch on this real quick. Go to Acts chapter 2. Now read some time. Read the end of Luke's gospel, read Luke chapter 24, and read the graphic and gross unbelief that the disciples of Jesus were in, even with Jesus, the resurrected Lord, right there in their midst. The scripture says they're touching his hands, putting their, handling his wounds, and the whole time they're doing it, yet they do not believe. How many of us have said, well, if the Lord would just speak to me, if the Lord would just visit me, if the Lord would just that, if the Lord would just, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. How do we know? Because his disciples didn't believe. Jesus said to the rich man, who said, Lord, let me go back and tell my brothers and warn them. And Jesus said, though one rise from the dead... They're not going to believe. Because if they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe one that even would rise from the dead. And he spoke of himself. Here is the resurrected Jesus, and they don't even believe. And so Jesus 
sends them to Jerusalem. He says, go wait there for the promise of the Father, which was the Holy Spirit. And you see that Jesus was crucified on Passover. That's the cross. But at Pentecost, the Spirit of God was poured out and the church was birthed. The cross is Passover, but the church is Pentecost. And what's the difference? The difference is the Spirit of God has now come to indwell us. And the Spirit of God has now opened the understanding. And He has has brought them into truth. And so you see in Acts chapter 2, this church that has come into the, the fullness and has come into the truth of God, into the truth of the gospel. And, and just, just look at the characteristics of this church. Verse 42, Acts chapter 2, 42. They continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine of fellowship and the breaking of bread. Fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions. They divided among themselves as anyone had need. They continued daily in one accord. Do you see the unity in the community that exists? This isn't a social doctrine. This isn't saying that we should all go sell our goods and and become communists and live communally. No, 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 no. I want you to see, though, the attitude, the heart, and the mind of these people that they were joined together and brought together as one in Christ. And they didn't see their own lives as belonging to themselves. They didn't even count their own lives as something that they possessed. They understood that they belonged to the Lord. And if they belonged to the Lord, then everything they had belonged to the Lord. And we see this reaffirmed in Acts chapter 4. At the end of Acts chapter 4, if there was anyone among them who lacked, they, they were all possessors of lands and houses. They sold them, they brought the proceeds, they shared amongst one another as anyone had need. What's the point? The point is they were unified. Who were they unified in? They were unified in Christ. There were no big eyes and little me's. They were all part of the body. And they were all focused on looking to Jesus, and they understood that it was Jesus who was the author and the finisher of their faith. And so you see this church birthed at Pentecost here in the book of Acts. Now let's fast forward 23 years, and let's go to 1 Corinthians. It's believed that Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians. His first letter was written somewhere around 56 AD. And so here we are, probably 15 to 20 years after what was recorded there in the book of Acts. We don't know how long it was from the day of Pentecost to those things that were recorded in, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, but let's just, let's just give the benefit of the doubt and let's say that that lasted for several years. But let's fast forward now and let's come to the Corinthian church. <coughs> Excuse me. And look in verse 1 Corinthians. If you start in verse 10... And I'm not going to read it, but if you, if you start there, you'll see that Paul begins by saying, he said, I plead that you would, what, speak the same thing, that there be no divisions, and that, the, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. He said, I've heard, it's been reported to me that there are contentions and divisions. And so you see, Paul is saying, what, speak the same thing, have the same mind, be joined together perfectly. You see, the, you see the polar opposite demonstrated here from the church in Acts to the church in Corinth. And so Paul goes on. And there he says, you know, some of you guys are fighting. You say, I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Apollos. I was baptized by Cephas. And those things became a point of pride. It's like, well, I was baptized by Apollos. Well, I was baptized by Paul. And we read Corinthians. It's called a book. But the reality is, in its original form, it was a letter. And Paul wrote this letter from Ephesus, and he wrote this letter to the Corinthians. And he wrote this letter in response to the reports that he had received about what was happening in this church. Now, can you imagine sitting down and writing a handwritten letter this long? That's a long letter. But Paul did it. And everything in his letter was addressing, it was addressing specific issues that were happening in the church. Do you realize 
Now remember, I've said this before. The, the Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. The letter to the Corinthians was not written to us, it was written to the Corinthians. But it was preserved for us. Why? Because what the Corinthian church was dealing with in their day, guess what? The church today is still dealing with today. And God divinely preserved His inspired word so that it could be for us today because the very same things that they're dealing with there, the church is dealing with today. Change the faces, change the names, change the circumstances, but the root goes back to the very same thing. And you know what the root is? The root is idolatry. You know what the root of idolatry is? It's unbelief. Why would, why would Eve allow that tree to become an idol that she looked to to give her life? Because she did not believe what God said. Why did the children of Israel become impatient because Moses took so long on the mountain and they said, Aaron, make us a calf that will lead us out of this wilderness that we can worship because we don't know if that man Moses is coming back or not. And why did they enter into idolatry there in the book of Exodus right at the foot of the mount of God where God is giving the Ten Commandments to Moses up there? Why? That idolatry was rooted in unbelief. That's why. Because they didn't believe God. And so we see here, Paul begins to address the Corinthians. And he says in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's interesting. He sent Paul to preach, what? The gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. The Greeks were real big on wisdom. They were real big on words. They were real big on public speaking and oratory. And if you didn't speak well and you couldn't communicate well, well, they just didn't think much of you and they didn't care to have you stand up and address them. And they loved wisdom and they loved knowledge and they loved philosophy. And Paul said, listen, I ain't coming with any of that stuff. I got one message and it's not rooted in the wisdom of man, it's the gospel. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Why did Paul come with the cross? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, look, verse 18, it is the power of God. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because it was through the cross and the message of the cross that Paul was going to destroy the idols of the Corinthian church. Oh, you think you're something because I baptized you? Or you think you're something because Apollos baptized you? Here, let me apply the cross. I'm going to destroy that idol in your life because, because that is nothing. Christ is everything. Fast forward in that book, he does a whole discourse on spiritual gifts. You know why he does? Because they were doing the same thing with spiritual gifts as they, they were doing baptism. Well, I have the gift of healing. Well, I've got the gift of working miracles. Well, I've got the word of knowledge. Well, I prophesy. Oh, yeah? Paul says, oh, you think that's something? Here, let me bring the cross and I'm going to destroy those idols that you have made out of your spiritual giftings. See, when it says, look, look at chapter 2. He says, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Do you know that the Corinthian church did not lack in the manifestation of miracles and gifts? They did not. The power Paul is talking about was the power of the gospel and the power of the cross to correct them and bring them back where they needed to be. To get out of their pride, to get out of being puffed up and arrogant about who they were, and to realize that the only thing that they have, the only identity that they possess, is in Christ. And that's it. There are no big eyes and little me's, he says. The eyes have been crucified with Christ. The me's no longer live. It is Christ who now lives. And the life we all live, we live by faith in the Son of God. 
And whatever part of the body He's put you in, whatever function you have, He has determined that. Rejoice in that. Be thankful for that. Function in that so that you can supply what the other parts of the body need to have supplied to them. He said, I'm coming with a message, and it's one message. It is the cross, because only the cross will destroy your idolatry that you've made out of the very gifts that God has given you. Do you see that? Do you see how we can take the things of God and they can come to be in the place of God himself? And when that happens, I promise you, God will judge his church. And how does he judge his church? He will bring the cross, and the cross will destroy that idolatry. He'll bring it to nothing. So that we have to get our eyes off of those things that we have put in place of him and get our eyes back on Jesus. Because that is the only thing that has true power. That is the only place that we can look to to draw life from. There is no other place. There is no other one. So idolatry exists in principle. Whenever or wherever anything becomes an object in itself rather than God. If I think my ministry as a pastor is what supplies me with my identity, if I begin to draw from that instead of from God, I have just made my ministry an idol. And God says, don't do that. If your job, if your career, if your family, if, if your significant other, whoever, whatever, becomes that thing that has come into the place where God should be, it has become an idol. And God says, don't let that happen. And we have a choice. We can crucify it. We can nail it to the cross. We can see it crucified. And we can turn our eyes back to Jesus. Or God in his love, it's like the song says, God in his love will cause us to become sweetly broken. Why? Why does God break us? Because God wants to bring us to life. God never wants us to think there's anything else that can provide life to us except him. It does not matter how good, how harmless, how seemingly spiritual something is. If it becomes an object in itself, in taking the place of the Lord himself, it is idolatry. We see from history how the Lord has had to smite with smashing blows. I think of the temple. And you think of the temple in Jerusalem. And how God allowed that temple and that city, not just once. When the Romans destroyed it, it was not the first time God had allowed his city and his temple to be smashed and destroyed. And you know why God did that? He allowed that which seemed so good to be destroyed because it had taken the place of, of himself and who he should be in the lives of his people. And we see that those things which in themselves were good, God will allow those things to be smoked, to be taken away in order to save his people unto himself personally. The Lord is not protecting good things today. The Lord is not protecting good things. See, we, we, because we live out of the knowledge of good and evil, because that's the tree we ate from in the beginning, and even though you may be redeemed today and you may be born again and of a new creation, your mind still goes back to that knowledge of good and evil. And we want to define everything based on what's good and what's evil, what's good and what's evil. And we think that God should preserve the good, but I'm telling you what, the good will rob you from God. It will rob you of what is God. The good, if allowed, will rob us of that which is God. And there is only one good. Guess who that is? It is God. And anything that's not of God, guess what? It's not good. It's not. You can call it good, I can call it good. It can seem good. It can seem to do good things. But if it takes the place of God, no matter how good it may be, if it takes the place that he rightly deserves, it has become an idol and God will not protect it. 
He won't do it. If those good things have become something to which men have become devoted and bound up, God is allowing them to be broken and destroyed, that He alone will receive glory and worship. Remember in the beginning I said worship is the ultimate word. See, anything that becomes an idol in our life, it is robbing God of the worship He deserves. And that's why you need to expand your mind in terms of what worship is. Worship is not the hour and a half or two hours you spend here on Sunday morning. That's not worship. Whether you realize it or not, every moment of every day, no matter where you are, no matter what you are doing, you are either worshiping God or you are worshiping an idol. And if you have allowed anything in your life to come before God and take the place that He rightly deserves, whether you realize it or not, you're worshiping an idol. And the Bible says, my people perish because of a lack of knowledge. The devil could care less whether you're conscious of it, whether it's something you purpose to do or not purpose to do. In your ignorance, you may be worshiping an idol. And you know what? God, in His mercy, He will not allow that to stand in your life. He won't. In His mercy, He won't do it. And thank God that He won't. He won't protect what we call good. Because what we call good will rob us of that which is God. Now I want to read one last thing. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Let's start in verse verse 3 of chapter 1. I want you to see what Paul spoke to these believers before he brought the cross and corrected their idolatry. Here's what he said. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. That you were enriched in everything by Him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus. See, there wasn't anything wrong with with their giftings and things that God, God had given them those things. The problem was their attitude. The problem was they allowed those things to become idols. Paul is thanking the Lord And encouraging them in the things that God has confirmed in them and given to them. So that you come short, verse 7, in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end. Church, I want you to know that God will confirm you to the end. God is not looking for an an escape clause in His covenant with you to get you out of there because you're not doing to suit Him. No, sir. God will confirm you to the end. And He says, Who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? How will you and I be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ? Not because we lived idolatry free. Not because we did everything right. Not because we never failed. Not because we never erred. No, we will be blameless in that day because He is blameless. Because the blameless one not only lives in me, but more importantly, I live in Him and He now is my life. How will I be absolutely righteous in that day? I will because He is the righteous one and He has grafted me into the righteous vine and His righteous life flows through me and I am no longer known and identified by that person that was crucified with Him. I am known and identified by the Head who is the Son and the Father accepts me because I am in the Son not because of anything I have done except I died. And now Christ has risen, raised me with Him. And He says, you will also confirm, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, 
Jesus Christ. I want you to know, church, God is faithful. God is dealing with his church. And he's dealing with the church. And I'm talking about the church universal. He's dealing with the church because he loves the church. Because the church is his bride. And he will not allow his bride to remain in idolatry. He will not allow his bride to remain in the state that she is in. And because he loves her, he is dealing with her. He is bringing the cross to bear upon the house of God. And it's a glorious thing. And God is working and effecting a transformation that's taking place in the body of Christ. And here's God's promise. He is faithful. He will confirm you to the end. And you have a choice. You can let that work be a glorious work. And you can experience the joy of that transformation and the peace of the work that God's doing by His cross. Or you can try to hang on to your idols and you can resist that work. And God will sweetly break you, but I promise you He will break you. Why? Because He is faithful. Why? Because He has promised to confirm you to the very end. He will present you to Himself glorious. That means when he presents you to himself, there will be no idolatry left. There won't be. But know this. God is not doing this to condemn you because you're not condemned anymore. If you're in Christ, you have passed condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You are in life. Let his life do a work in you. Let his life transform you and conform you to the image of the Son. That is your destiny. That is the promise God has made to His church. He will perform that work. He is faithful to do it to the very end. He who has begun a good work in you, Philippians 1.6, will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's good news. That's good news. I want to know before we close, is there anyone here, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? You say, Pastor Jeff, before I go today, I want to know that I'm born again. I didn't ask you if you had a religious experience. I didn't ask you if you had a spiritual experience. I'm asking you, I'm asking you, have you been born again? Have you been transformed by the power of the gospel, by the power of the cross? It's the only thing that can change you. And if you have not and you want to be, and you just want to confess, I want to I accept Jesus today. I want to be changed. I want to be born again. Raise your hand. Is there anybody, 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 the most important decision a person can possibly make in their life? Anyone? Anyone? Let's all stand. Now I'm going to pray a prayer of dismissal. And if you're here, I know we have some prayer needs. I want to remind you to pray for the Patchkey family. Miss Patchkey passed away. And uh, there's going to be a a visitation and a prayer service tonight uh, from 5 to 7 at Providence Funeral Home. And then the service tomorrow morning will be at 10 a.m. at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Thorndale, if you are able to make it. And if not, just keep the family in prayer. And maybe there are other needs here. Maybe you're suffering in your body. You have some prayer needs. After I pray the prayer of dismissal, if you'll come up here, just come to the front, then we will pray with you concerning whatever need that you might have. Father, we just thank you for this day. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we just remember.